0: You can contact the program by calling 866-41-ABIDE or by visiting us on the web at wvr.org.
1: And now, without further delay, here's your host, Jim Wood.
0: My guest this evening is Josh White. Josh is uh, a man with a history that he does not mind sharing because God works through people. All of us are flawed. All of us need healing, and Josh knows that his story is not unlike many other people's story, and he wants folks to find God's grace, not just in his story, but in the story of redemption. So um, I, I thank you for listening tonight, and Josh, I thank you for coming on the broadcast with us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Josh's uh, new book has a wonderful title. It says, Stumbling Toward Eternity. Can anybody out there relate to that? Stumbling Toward Eternity, Losing, and Finding Ourselves in the Cross of Jesus. Tell us a bit about your childhood. And one reason I'm especially eager for you to share this is the population of students that I work with here at Wares Valley Ranch is young people who have a problem in the home that they didn't create. So Mm -hmm. it may be something like, you know, mom is battling cancer, or in the case of some of our students, mom has died of cancer, Mm -hmm. or dad's in prison, or dad ought to be in prison. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a variety of situations uh, but these kids are not the problem. It's not their behavior that lands them here. This is not a reform school or a psych ward. This is a place for kids who need a change in environment uh, to heal, to right. find safety and nurture and, and evidence that God is real and that he loves them. You could have benefited from a place like Wares Valley Ranch when you were growing up. Tell us, Tell us about your childhood.
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, just outside of Portland, uh, kind of in between Portland and Seattle on the Columbia River in a depressed mill town called Longview, Washington. I actually lived kind of back and forth between Longview and um, Rainier, Oregon. There's this mm-hmm. bridge that at the time of its building completion it was like the largest cantilever bridge in america but crosses the columbia river um and i kind of lived like a yo-yo between those two towns you know and i was a kid who my mom and dad um my mom got pregnant with me when she was 18 um my dad was 20 uh you know they were you know early 70s so like hippie kids you know from uh, just like you know, when you, poor poverty in America is an interesting thing, and the Wild West, uh, you know, it's like when it's when it rains all the time. It's like you, you either become a creative <laughs> and escape. <laughs> or it feels like you either become a creative and escape, but it, there's no mill to work at anymore. Um, and so, you know, drugs and alcohol, you know, have been a prominent aspect of many of the the more rundown towns of the Northwest. But I think it's kind of an American reality um seeing rural america uh, many but, places and, yeah um so i you know my dad was a s- serious drinker and partier you know, very handsome you know long-haired i would say you look like a more handsome version of kurt cobain from nirvana um <laughs> and uh, my mom beautiful you know long dark-haired hippie but you know my mom and dad my mom married my dad because she was pregnant and felt like she should mm-hmm. um, and my dad was just, you know, he was irresponsible and impulsive. And they ended up divorcing when I was one. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, my my earliest child mem- childhood memory, which I deal with in the first chapter of the book, uh, is my mom, my dad trying to take me uh, when I was like, I think almost three uh, from, uh, from my mom uh, while he was drunk putting me in the car. And that kind of marked the tension between my mom and my father, like for my childhood, My mom actually stopped letting me see my dad when mm-hmm. I was in first grade because of his cocaine use. So I, you know, I went from an unavailable, as I call him, the um, str- my stranger father to then a, a stand-in dad, <laughs> stepdad that only lasted two years. You know, my mom, you know, she's young and she didn't want to be alone and she didn't want to raise two boys on her own. And mm-hmm. she, and she unfortunately picked men. Um, you know, we often repeat the same mm-hmm. issues. Like, just like, like, why is a woman always drawn to the bad men? <laughs> you know, it's like, so she picked a guy that was not a good man. And like, so, you know, my first stepdad was terrifying. And, uh, mm. you know, I write, I write about, uh, my mom the night my mom left him in when I was in second grade and we lived actually in the shadow of the Lewis and Clark bridge like on oh. in Rainier and I remember in our single wide trailer him slamming my mom up against the wall and hitting her and her screaming and me hiding with my little brother under the bed mm-hmm. and uh, her busting into the room and I thought she was dead I thought it was going to be him mm-hmm. and her just telling us to get our clothes on and we walked over that bridge which it's so high and so big, pedestrians yeah. aren't even allowed to cross it any longer. <laughs> um, yeah. but we like crossed that bridge at like midnight, um, and you know so then it was my mom, a single mom, working two jobs. So the challenges of that was you know it was better than having a bad stepdad, but yes. the challenge the challenge of a working mother was that I ended up with being responsible for my brother, and then my she had another son, my my half-brother, who I'm super close with um mm. all of a sudden I'm like the man of the house, but I wasn't prepared for that or um, right. you know, you end up with a childhood with almost no adult supervision. Right. And and but that still was better than my two stepdads. And my mom right before I started sixth grade reconnected with her childhood sweetheart and it was my actual father's best friend. Um huh. she married uh, right before sixth grade started and we got moved over to the eastern Washington. And it was just the middle of nowhere, farming town. And mm-hmm. I was the kid that, you know, I've been raised by my mom. I'm like, no sports. I love dancing and singing. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, it did not set me up well for a farming town. <laughs> and so right. in the formative years of like junior high um, and a stepdad who was like an all-star athlete and he just did not understand me. So you know, it, yeah, I just, I think what what I would describe my childhood as is like um, that overwhelming sense of just feeling invisible and mm-hmm. and, and anxious, very unsafe and anxious. Um, my mom came to faith when I was in third grade. So there's a oh. pe- that piece. Um, and so I, I did, the church actually was the place where I discovered singing, where um, I started doing music. I started singing duet, duets with my mother to, like, accompany my cassette tapes. Remember those days?
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Sunday, like, the special offering song where we do, yes. like, like, Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith track. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, we, yeah, we, um, I, you know, that came out of it. But I think, you know, by the time I was in high school, uh, I just, I'd abandoned all things spiritual and faith and I kind of discovered the arts and I was like the nightmare youth group kid like my mom would try to make me go to church and I would go on drugs um, but I end up getting I end up moving out like the moment I graduated from high school I moved away and I moved to Seattle and uh, start pursuing music because I didn't come to faith until I was 27 years old so um, I when I moved to Seattle. I mean, I got a record deal with Mercury records by 22. And I think that that was the thing. My pursuit of music was just that deep desire to be seen. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to fix, you know, I wanted to show the world that I wasn't invisible and I discovered a talent that people noticed. And so, um, but it created, you know, an ambition that was as reckless as it was, um, you know, life-changing it was also very self-absorbed and, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, immediately put my marriage like on the fringes of disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the best thing that happened to me was losing my record deal at 24 um, a month after I got married and selling my own album out of the used bin at a record store working for minimum wage when a year before i thought i was going to be a rock star yeah. <laughs> i would say humility is learned best in the school of humiliation <laughs> and, so, and,
0: and so it turns out that what was extremely painful was part of god's mercy
1: yeah i would say like I'm like, we don't have to make God responsible for the bad that comes into our life, but he does have the incredible ability of weaving the dissonant notes of existence into his redemptive story.
0: Absolutely. And,
1: uh, yeah, I'm like I would say, I don't, one of the big themes of the book is, you know, I think we try to, we constantly want to come up with, you know, a theodicy. We want to understand why we suffer as human beings. I'm like, Job should teach us better than uh to be smarter than asking that kind of impossible question. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't need to know why I suffer. I just need to know that God's done something about it. And, uh, um, and that's where the cross comes in. Is like my ability to go back into the painfulness of my past. And even the challenges that I face as a pastor in a city like Portland and, you know, the, and my willingness to be honest about my own brokenness is that Mm -hmm. a, I think that the church has got to learn in this post pandemic world um that the world is not interested in our pretense or our um, attempting to present to them an ideal that we ourselves can't keep um yes. what the what the world's interested in is seeing an honesty and a humility to say that man we are broken people but jesus is good and he Amen. and what compels transformation is actually knowing that on our worst day we're loved and uh and that's when we can actually go into our stories and begin to find what I call pinpoints of grace. Um, it was always there. And it's just like, mm-hmm. we just have to learn how to see it. And I, I think when we start to remove that victim, like mm-hmm. I would say, Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer. Like he, he, he is both the judge and the judged in our place. And, yeah. uh, he who's been forgiven much loves much, right? <laughs> so, so yeah. So I found faith actually um, in 1999 through reading a Bible that my mom gave me, and uh, you know I just was having that existential crisis. My music career had kind of blown up. My wife was on the verge of leaving me, and I was like, I need. I would say I I, I came to faith right at the beginning of what was called the emergent movement, and oh. because of all my tattoos and everything, they thought I everyone thought when I first went into ministry that I was some sort of emergent preacher. I'm like, I don't even get that. Like, I don't, like, I'm completely disinterested in making Jesus relevant. I'm like, I don't need relevance or cool. I just need someone to save me. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So, so, yeah, I came to faith in 99, and then my wife came to faith two years after me at 33. Right. Um, and, uh, um, and then six months after she became a believer, we found ourselves in full-time ministry. <laughs> so, which I don't know if that's actually the wisest
0: thing, <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> but, but yeah. So, yeah. So that, you know, a little bit about the story, you know, a lot of the book actually follows specifically the, um, the, the story of my relationship with my father that, mm-hmm. um, it was so challenging, you know, a lot of it was addressing these childhood things, but then really my adult life was marked by these long, like five-year stints where my mom my dad and i wouldn't even talk and i had started door of hope a church right in the heart of portland in 2009 and in the first two years we went from like zero to a thousand people in a city that everyone said like you know nobody can reach portland it's you know it's sodom and gomorrah uh, and you know what i found is actually the opposite it's the first truly post-christian city in the united states and what, what that meant for me was that all the millennial kids that grew up here, they actually didn't have any, they didn't have any biases really, because they didn't have, they never grew up in the church. They never went to church. Right. Um, so they, and, you know, kids that moved here that were, you know, trying to make a name for themselves is like the heyday of Portland being, the, you know, they called it the city where young people went to, re- to retire. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's great food city, great art city. Um, obviously Portland's through the ringer, it's a different city now. But when we started that, I started realizing like, here I am like the kind of spiritual father to all these young, you know, Darcy and I were, I started when I was 35. And it's like, we were the oldest people in the church. It was, (laughs) and um, here I am like the spiritual father to all these like 18 to 22 year olds, but I hadn't, and I was getting ready to do a series on the 10 commandments and I was like, Dang it, honor your mom and dad. I'm like, why doesn't <laughs> that commandment have a contingency? <laughs> <laughs> and I just got this conviction, like, I can't in good conscience like love these kids and refuse to forgive my father, refuse to honor my dad. You know, one of the ways I honor him is by not being like him. Um but, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So brother,
0: that is one of the main issues we deal with here at the ranch is, you know, if if your parent has been uh, a total abusive, violent, molester, whatever. How do you honor that? Well, yeah, you honor it by living the kind of life that will cause people to say, wow, you must have had great parents. Mm-hmm. If, if you behave in a way that brings honor to them, you're honoring them, even if they're not around anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
0: has been life-changing and liberating for so many young people as they've realized, okay, I don't have to pretend about the past. I don't have to rationalize it. I don't have to defend it, minimize it, whatever. I'm just not going to focus on it. I'm going to focus on Jesus, and I'm going to live a life that pleases him. And in doing so, I will be honoring my father and mother. And you're exactly right that you have to forgive, because I don't care how great, in quotes, uh, your parents were. They made mistakes. They did some things wrong. They failed to mm-hmm. do some things they should have done. And you've got to forgive all of that because Jesus has forgiven you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's one of the challenges is that the, I think the church, um, you know, I've seen a, a tendency to diminish the cross, the centrality mm-hmm. of the cross. Yes. It's like when when we remove the cross, we drain Christianity of its blood. Like yes. it's, the o- it's the only thing that, you know, I think God has always been a forgiving God. I mean, I think from Genesis to Revelation, God isn't, you know, feel like God can't be in the presence of sin. I'm like, I don't know. It seems to be getting right in the front of it, like from page one. He wasn't the one hiding in the beginning. <laughs> it was right. our first parents. He's the one pers- pushing into their they're hiding um, and Mm -hmm. trying to do something about it. Uh, But I I do think that, um, that there's this, there's this new fast kind of fascinating attempt. And I try to address this in the book of like, like the um, attractiveness of ladder theology is very profound. Um, And uh, the, because it's, it's, it's much more linear and it's, uh, and it's more prescriptive. Mm-hmm. and it, and it's it's easier for people to get their head around because people by nature tend to be followers they're just like just tell me what to do and, yeah yeah and so and and life is actually more complex than that and the gospels it, it's the more difficult pleasure because it's jesus isn't asking us to do this or that thing he's asked i always say that the goal isn't arriving the goal is the goal is knowing and to mm-hmm. know someone to really know someone is not actually requires an effort that's more complex than just I read my Bible today, I went to church on Sunday, I did this, I'm like, Yeah, but do you love him? Do you know him? Amen. And and do you know Amen. that you're loved? Yeah. And and so that that's a that's a huge, huge emphasis um for me. And I think that the what the cross when I started to put the emphasis on the cross, what I found is that it became It became much easier to re-engage now for me i always tell people people ask me all the time like how did you re-engage with your dad you know and and people ask me like if they've gone through abuse or whatever Mm -hmm. i'm like i go well i think that we need you know where the scripture is silent you have you need spirit-filled wisdom and Mm -hmm. you know discernment you know and so for me i'm a grown man my father's health is continuing to deteriorate as i pushed into relationship with him yes my dad never apologized. I remember him saying to me once ago, I'm never going to apologize for how I raised you. And I'm like, uh, dad, you didn't raise me. And I just yeah. remember him like swearing at me. He's like, Joshua, when I call you, I want to feel better, not worse. And he hangs up on me. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and I'm like, but for me, it was like, I ended up being <clears throat> entering into more of a parent role with yes. a man who I didn't need to make him pay for mm. like, he is, he, I could never hurt him more than he had already hurt himself, yes. and that's not how Jesus functions. And so yeah. I had the, I had the bandwidth and the maturity to enter into a challenging relationship. Um, and so I like I tell people like when you like read my book like don't think I'm telling you to go put yourself in harm's way right. uh, with something that you can't handle. And you know my dad lived in isolation at the end of his life, mm-hmm. um, and who drank himself to death, and you know. Was in and out of ICU probably once or twice a month, mm. but to be able to be there for him um, and to be able to to love him in spite of what I never received from him was yes. a powerful. And it actually became it became that someone always said, "How do you know if you really forgave someone?" And I I actually think forgiveness in most cases um, requires proximity. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, for me, the forgiveness came in an actual moment where I had been sharing the gospel with my dad, and he just um, he had blown out his esophagus and had been flown to Anchorage. He lived up in Alaska, mm-hmm. and uh, he had gone on a drinking binge and drank three fifths of Crown Royal in one day, and he had mm-hmm. jaundice and his esophagus ruptured. And he, you know, my aunt, his only sibling, didn't think he was going to make it. And I went up there as much for her as I did for myself. And so Mm -hmm. I flew up and I felt the Lord just put on my heart, you know, you've shared the gospel with them. He knows what you believe. Uh, Now you need to show them that you love him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, people in Portland love the, uh, you know, St. Francis of Assisi quote, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, but that's usually just means that they don't want to talk about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm by no means uh, speaking. I think Assisi probably did not mean, what is attributed to him. And if he did, yes. he's wrong. <laughs> so yes. um But, uh, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, but word does need to be backed up by action, a Amen. life that is lived. And so, you know, we need to be able to have, get our hands and feet dirty. And right. I went up there and I remember walking in that hospital room and my, the smell of a man whose internal organs are dying and mm-hmm. he hadn't bathed probably in a month mm-hmm. and he was feisty and was embarrassed to have his son see him in that state yep. and uh, I hadn't seen him in years and I just remember he had to go to the bathroom and he was still so such a curmudgeon <laughs> <laughs> that he really was a curmudgeon and yes. I miss I miss him I miss the curmudgeon <laughs> um, but uh he I, I had to help him out of his bed and he's like I got it I don't need help and he was like he is connected to an IV and I got frustrated and I just said fine and I let go of him. And he like got to the middle of the room and it was like, he was like a tree about to like become yeah. uprooted. He just started to totter and yeah. I had to come in behind him. And I remember his gown was open. He's like just dirty backside to, mm-hmm. face to me. And I'm, and my dad is not like a hugger really. <laughs> and I had to wrap my arms around him to catch him. Yeah. And at first he was like, start swearing and like so agitated. And I just, I was much stronger. <laughs> so I was like, I'm like, dad, it's okay. I've got you. I've got you and I felt his body relax in my arms and I realized that this is this is a man who hadn't been hugged or touched probably in two years Mm -hmm. um, since his partner had died and Mm -hmm. uh, um, of alcoholism and uh, and here his son's holding him and Mm -hmm. it's like he stopped fighting me and I could feel his body just like receive my help and it was and it just taught me that significant lesson that grace is always unfair Mm -hmm. and that uh and in that moment like my heart kind of just melted toward him i just i i felt him in my arm like he was a little kid you know and i just had i had compassion on him and and in that moment i began to really love him like actually love my dad and uh, you know he died a year ago in february and i was able to be with him and uh, the, the last chapter of the book is actually about his death, but, Praise um, God. you know, and so, yeah, so I, I think that that forgiveness is, man, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to the devil. I think Amen. a lot of Christians become Satan's tools when they think they can hold on to anger and not be harmed by it.
0: Amen. Amen. Josh, thank you so much, both for coming on the broadcast and also for writing this book and sharing your story because it's, it's a beautiful testimony to God's grace. And if you yeah. want to know God's grace, you've got to go to the cross. Amen. To to the cross. Thank you so much, Josh. God bless you.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Abiding in Christ. If you have questions that you'd like for us to tackle on the program or comments that you want to make, I want to invite our listeners to call 866 866- 41 Abide, that's our toll free number, 866 41 Abide, or contact us on the web at wvr.org.